Well, if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Then we'll do a couple Christmas uh, sermons leading up to Christmas. And then uh, starting the new year, we'll finish up Ephesians. And then Scott will actually preach for four weeks in a row as uh, I prepare to get ready to begin in Genesis. And uh, so that's kind of gives you an idea of what's in front of us. But this morning, verses 16 and 17 of Ephesians chapter 6. I'll begin in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. And this in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Father, as we consider this shield in this helmet this morning, Father, will you give us spiritual insight and wisdom that will affect us at a heart level? Father, would you do the work that you promised to do to conform us into the image of Christ? And uh, Lord, anyone who is yet to taste of your goodness in a saving way, Lord, that you might grant them salvation this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by having you imagine for a moment that you are a medic uh, in the days of Christ or in the, the days when one of the main weapons was a bow and arrow. All right, I want you to picture having your troops be at battle. You're the medic. And it's now dark, and it's a rough day. You're exhausted. You continually see more and more soldiers come stumbling up to the tent where you are. In fact, Sometimes you even look, and some soldiers have 10 to 15 arrows, flaming arrows, stuck in them. So they can barely walk. And the most odd part is, every one of these soldiers is dragging around with them their shield. Flaming arrows in them their shield dragging on the ground. As you look, you see more arrows striking them. 
and more arrows striking them. I believe that imagery right there is the reality for so many Christians. You've heard me talk a lot about biblical counseling, which is just discipling believers with the Word of God. The work of biblical counseling is to help pull out flaming arrows that are burning them and hurting them and then teaching them how to hold their shield up like this to stop them. You know, this time we think about like a Christmas Eve service. We think about uh, some of the traditional ones you've been to where they shut off the lights. Obviously, it's in the evening time. And the light in the room is all these candles. Well, I want you to imagine a different picture. I want you to imagine that it's dark outside right now. And what if God gave us spiritual sight? I believe this room would be lit up like Christmas Eve. Because there would be so many here that have flaming darts, flaming arrows stuck inside of them. And one of the big reasons this is true is because of the way we talk about faith, at least in America. We always refer to the faith that saves a person. The, the, the faith of justification where a person's found not guilty before God as they first place their trust in Christ. And we're kind of taught that you need faith to get saved, but fail to teach how faith is the way you survive and live every day of your life. So that what becomes normal is this must be what God meant for us. We, we must be meant to live with flaming arrows stuck in us all the time. Well, that's not how God meant us to live. The command, when we think of the command of our text, the first command is real simple. Take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith, which means he's speaking this to believers, which means it's possible that believers could be walking around dragging their shield on the ground. Now, in actuality, the type of shield talked about in Paul's day was the size of like a door. Literally, your whole body, you would set it on the ground and your whole body could be behind it. But Paul doesn't say, because you are saved, there's automatically a shield in front of you 
Therefore, none of Satan's lies, none of his deceptions, none of his darts will get through to you. He doesn't say that. But he commands us to put on the armor of God, to take up the shield of faith, which means maybe you showed up here with no flaming darts in you. Or maybe you haven't been diligent to be putting on the armor of God. And therefore, what we're going to look at this morning becomes vitally. This is probably one of the most life-changing realities when I realized this. In, in, and that's growing up in a Christian home. That's being saved at a young age. So let's first consider the scope of the command. Look at verse 16. He says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And I want to show you another all. He says, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So, all circumstances. When, when am I to hold up the shield of faith? In all circumstances. Well, how often will it be effective when I hold it up? It will extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one when it is held up. That's the scope of it. One way to think of it would be this. We can imagine a mother sending a son off to war. Some of you have maybe done that. You've known people that have done that. Let's say their son is in the special forces. Trained to go to the most dangerous places and do the most dangerous jobs. Now imagine a mother praying something like this. Lord, I pray that you would give my son safe circumstances as he goes off to war. Now you can understand why a mother wanting that for her son, but what you would say maybe to her is, ma'am, I'm sorry, but your prayer is naïve. You don't need to pray that he finds himself in safe circumstances for your son has been training. His job is to go into the most dangerous circumstances you can ever imagine. And so a more realistic prayer would be, Lord, my son is going to a very dangerous place to do a very dangerous job. Would you be a shield of protection around him and protect him as the enemy seeks to take my son's life? That would be a realistic prayer, a prayer not offered up in denial. And Paul's telling us here that you don't live in a world where you get five minutes of promised protection from the evil one. 
It's not the world you live in. The devil and his demons are seeking to take your life. Like a lion that prowls around looking for prey, you don't get one minute of reprieve promised to you from the Scriptures where you can take a deep breath and say, I'm just going to let my guard down. You are in a world at war. And the war isn't against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Now let's think for a minute. Now that we've established there's no such thing as safe circumstances, this is why we need to hold up the shield of faith in all circumstances. Let's ask this question. What are circumstances? What are circumstances? Here's what the dictionary says. A fact or condition connected with or relevant to an event or an action. Here, here, this would be my definition. Circumstances are the things or events that happen in time, either in the present or the past. Things are events that happen in time. Now, a couple things about circumstances. One, you're not in control of them. You can't imagine, you can't honestly, realistically imagine how to figure out how to be in control of your circumstances. Though you and I often think we can control them. It's not that we don't have responsibilities in circumstances, but there's so much outside of us that we can't control, which makes up our circumstances like this. Where are you going to get your next breath? You need that from God, which means you don't have control of your life a few seconds in front of you. There's other people in our life, and we can't control them. On top of that, Paul tells us there's cosmic powers that are so much stronger than we are in and of ourselves. There's God's will. And so when we think about circumstances, we have to remember we don't control them. We play a part. We can't guarantee that we can bring about any outcome we might want to bring about. The second thing I want to share about circumstances is this. Circumstances play a decisive role in Satan's schemes. All right? Circumstances play a decisive role in Satan's schemes. The fiery darts are accusations. They're lies. They're deceptions. They're temptations. And all those are in regards to circumstances. What's already happened? His lies are in light of what's already happened. 
His accusations are in light of what's happened. His temptations are in light of the circumstance in the moment that's right in front of you. One way to think of it would be uh, this. Circumstances are one of the fundamental materials Satan uses to build a defamation case against you and against God. Satan fundamentally says, look at what just happened. Look at reality. Look at what you just did. Look at who just died. You really think God's good in light of those circumstances? You really think you're going to stand before God when you just did that five minutes ago? And by the way, you've been doing that for 20 years? The building materials for the accuser and for his case is in regard to circumstances. You see that, right? This is how the attack will always come. Now let's consider this. What's the purpose of the command? So if the scope of the command is in all circumstances, your entire life on this earth. Now let's think of the purpose of the command. Obviously, if we're to hold up the shield of faith, to take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. It's a protection. Let's think of the darts. We, we, I just did this a little bit. If God is good, this wouldn't happen. What? Look at this. You did this again? God may be able to save other sinners, but you are just too much. How much patience do you think God's really going to have? Do you really think your repentance is real? Do you, are, do you really think it's sincere? Is your faith strong enough? Fiery darts come like this. Did you see the way she looked at you? I bet she has something against you. I bet she's been talking about you. See, we see these arrows flying all the time. And so often, the arrows fly and they stick and they remain. Some of them remain for a day. Some of them remain for a week. Some people have been walking around with flaming darts in them for years. And so when Paul says, take up the shield of faith, he's talking about something incredibly practical. Incredibly practical. Here's the thing, though, about Satan and using circumstances. They play such a de decisive role in his schemes. However, here's the trick. Satan always conveniently leaves out one set of circumstances that happen on this earth in real 
time. Satan always conveniently forgets the circumstances that took place out the wall, outside the walls of Jerusalem in 33 AD in regards to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God who hung on a cross and rose from the grave. You've heard me say before, what is the news? The news is all the bad stuff that's happening as though God doesn't exist. And you wonder why you feel so miserable. Because you turn on the news station and you're just saying, I'm putting my shield down, shoot the flaming darts into me, and let's conveniently forget the one by whom we keep our time. Let's conveniently forget what Christ did for us. So when we think of taking up the shield of faith, one way to think of it is this. You need to remember all the circumstances. We're not people that pretend like we don't sin. We're not people that have to say, no, I'm better than, than I look and defend ourselves and be defensive. No, we can look real circumstances in the eye and we can confess our sins for what they really are. We don't have to make someone else look worse. We can own them. Why? Because we know about the circumstances in regards to Jesus Christ. And remembering those circumstances and trusting in them by faith is holding up the shield of faith. So here's what I'm saying. Don't miss it. I'm saying Christians sincerely get saved. And think of that as the beginning. Like, okay, now I know I'm going to heaven. Now I got to get on to other things. When in fact, the Apostle Paul described the fight of faith as the normal, everyday reality that he needs to believe. So Christians can live their life on this earth with flaming darts in them. When you have flaming darts in you, how effective do you think you are in the battle? How effective can you really be? Let's imagine for a moment. Let's imagine the devil and his demons launching arrows. They take aim at a Christian marriage. And their hopes is to watch it burn up, to watch it die. And the reason why they often do this is because in marriage, this is supposed to be the place where God's amazing, gracious love shines forth and points to the gospel of Christ. All right? So let's imagine the devil and his demons find a Christian couple and say, that's where we're going to shoot our arrows. All right? The reality will be that as a marriage takes on direct hits, flaming dart after flaming dart after flaming dart after flaming dart 
and they begin to pile up. The husband and the wife will literally get to the point where they can see no hope. They can't see any light in front of them. They'll get to the point where they're ready to give up and their argument, I mean, we can sympathize, right? How many arrows would you have stuck in you before you just say, you know what, I'm going to die. I hope this next one hits me fatally. We can sympathize. How many arrows would you take on before you just said, I'm dead? I can't take one more. We can understand it. But think about this. What will they say? What will their argument be that divorce is the only way forward? It's always going to be something like this. Look at the circumstances. Look at the circumstances in the past that led us up to the present. Their conclusion is always that these circumstances lead us to the Loctite case that there is no hope no matter what. Too many years, too much evidence, no hope. It's dead. But when this happens, when a couple gets to this point, when this happens, the actual reality of things is this, that one or both of them have begun to forget. They have stopped considering the most important circumstance, circumstances that ever took place on this earth, namely Jesus' work on their behalf and the implications and promised effects of those circumstances on those who trust him. Let me show you what I mean. In Romans 6, 4, we're told this, we were therefore buried with him, buried with Christ, by baptism into death. In, or, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So for the Christian, your death was already died. You've already died under the wrath of God in Christ's death. That's what your baptism represents. The punishment for your sin was already swallowed up. Christ's death was your death. And the next thing is, he says is amazing though, that you might walk in newness of life. The next verse says we'll share in a resurrection like his. That's talking about our body that will actually come out of the grave after we die. But verse 5 is talking about the promise that if Christ died under the wrath of God for your sins, then you too can change. I don't care how many years are behind you. I don't care how many circumstances that are lined up. Because if you're in Christ, you can change. You can grow. You can forgive. You can repent. You can be conformed in the image of Christ. Not only can you, 
But the Bible promises that he will be doing this work in your life. Do you realize that the whole Christian life is to be lived by faith? Do you realize that? See, if you let the world set your normal, you walk around with flaming darts all the time. <laughs> the world has very good arguments for their grumbles, for their complaints, for their unforgiveness, for their sins. Really good arguments. That if you want to believe them, you can deceive yourself and you can do that. But God has called you always in every circumstance to be holding your shield up because in every circumstance you're going to be attacked. Galatians 2.20 says this. Here's what Paul says. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You've probably heard that verse before. That's where everybody stops reading that verse. Let me read it again. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. The second half of the verse says this. And the life I now live in the flesh. That means on this earth, while the arrows are flying. The Apostle Paul is about to tell you how he lives on this earth in his flesh. Here's what he says. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you do it, Paul? You got stoned to the point of death yesterday. They drug you out. They thought you were dead. Now you're going back in there. How are you doing that? Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Paul's always talking about his love for us or for the church or for you. Here he says it in the personal sense. He's telling you how he lives his life and he remembers this. Jesus loved me. Yeah, that girl's talking about you. They're forming a group against you. They want to see you go down. Yeah, well, Jesus loves me. Christ loves me. The context of all circumstances means that we need to remember the circumstances involving Jesus Christ at all times. And that is the very thing we need to extinguish all of Satan's. I mean, if he's the accuser and his point is, look at this sin, judgment's coming, wrath is coming, there's no hope for you, you might as well take your own life now, and you say, yeah, that's right, I am a sinner. I did do that. I'm even worse than what you're saying, but Christ came to die for sinners. 
I'm found in him. He defeated you in the wilderness. All the temptations. Christ defeated you. I'm in him. You see that? Holding up the shield of faith is like putting on the blessed breastplate of righteousness. It's like putting on the belt of truth. It's remembering what the Bible says and the Bible is pointing to us, to Christ. So what's going to define your life? The arrows that are flaming inside you or Christ? You know, there's two ways to think about faith. This is the helpful part. Uh, uh, Heath Lambert, uh, he used to be the president of ACBC Biblical Counseling, but he wrote a book called Finally Free, which is a little book to help people who are addicted to pornography uh, to be able to be free, which really, I wish they would just make a book that says any one who is addicted to any sin of the flesh, any lust of the flesh, any addiction, drinking, uh, eating, uh, drugs, alcohol, pornography. The principles in the book are the very thing you need for... But one of the chapters early on, he distinguishes between forgiving grace and transforming grace. You could say the difference between justifying grace and sanctifying grace. So what, what's the difference? So here's what we're always told, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved. So imagine the, the only thing that will ever save you is grace. There's, there's not one thing you can do to save yourself. God will never look at one effort that you did and says, because of that, I will save that person. So all of God's grace is God's grace. Imagine it up here in heaven. You got a sinner like me down here on the earth. And the question is this, how in the world is that grace ever going to get down here to this sinner? What's the form of travel that that grace can funnel into the sinner's life? Listen, for by grace you have been saved through, so here's a funnel, through faith. And that, both the grace and the faith, is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast, which means that God shoots the funnel down. God is the author and perfecter of our faith. And when the new birth comes to a believer and their eyes are open and they believe for the first time, that grace comes flooding towards them in heaven, judicially before God, they're found not guilty. That's called forgiving grace. That's what I knew, at least not to that level, but that's what I was taught at VBS when I was a child. Forgiving grace, forgiving grace, forgiving grace, forgiving grace, forgiving grace. Yeah, but why can't I find victory over sins that just hang on and hang on and hang on and hang on? And Heath Lambert says in his book, 
is because that's because you've never thought about transforming grace. See, God not only promised that in Christ to wipe your sins away and give you Christ's perfect righteousness in your account, but His death also secured a new life that you can begin to live in the sanctification process. Here's the thing. Will God's forgiving grace ever come to a person apart from faith? Never. Grace is never going to come through to a sinner apart from faith. That's what it funnels through. Now, here's the thing. You talk to someone addicted to pornography and you ask them, do you believe you'll ever get to the point where you won't look at it again? Most of them, if they're honest, they would say, I like to believe that, but I don't believe that can happen. That's the opposite of faith, right? No, I can't stop being enslaved by the sin of pornography. Do you think God is going to give transforming grace through the doubt that I'm going to be enslaved to my sin for the rest of my life? It is true we will sin until Christ returns. But that doesn't mean you need to be enslaved to sin. We're perfected when Christ returns. And then this is the verse Heath Lambert wrote that was just like, wow, it's incredible. Verse 11 of Romans 6. He says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin. And here's what he said. That word consider, it's a faith word. You must consider. I'm not dead to sin. I'm not dead to sin. I'm not dead to sin. Look at this. I'll never stop. I'll never stop. I'll never stop. Consider yourself dead to sin. Well, why would I ever consider that? Because part of the promise in Jesus' death is that He's going to give sanctifying power so that sin no longer needs to be your master. And so verse 11 says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then verse 12 says, here's the action. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. I think the Holy Spirit can help me, help change my affections, help me hold up the shield of faith. That's how you begin to be transformed. Transforming grace comes to those who hold up the shield of faith. And if you're going to drag your shield around, if you're going to drag it around and you're not going to lift it up, you're only going to believe that, yes, God can forgive me, but He can't change me. Guess what? You're not going to be changed. God's grace shows itself powerful through those people 
who look at the promises of his word that maybe seem impossible, but trust in them. So Paul describes his life in two different metaphors. 1 Timothy 6.11 But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, faith, love, gentleness, our steadfastness, gentleness. And then he says this, fight the good fight of faith. What's faith like, Paul? It's like a war. It's like a battle. Arrows flying. Got to hold it up. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 2 Timothy 4, he says this, 4, 6, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He knows he's going to die soon. Here's what he said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race. So the second metaphor is like a marathon. I've kept the faith. It is hard to hold up the shield of faith. That's why Paul says, I have to die daily. What does he mean when he says that? It means every morning he wakes up, he wants to be king of his life, but he needs to remember the circumstances that took place surrounding Jesus Christ, where Jesus Christ became Lord of his life, and he needs to die, and now he needs to say, Lord, you have my life. That's the fight of faith. That's wrestling yourself out of selfishness. Here's how Peter said it. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Ah, that's faith. That's another faith sentence, isn't it? Prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's what he says, be sober-minded. You're about to be persecuted by Nero in the most gruesome ways possible. That's what's facing the recipients of this letter. And those flaming darts, those circumstances are going to be so impossible. Spears up the rectum of Christians, put on covered in pitch, alive, and burned to light the streets of Rome. That's what was coming. And here's what Peter says. You better be preparing your minds for action. And you better set 100% of your hope on the grace that's coming to you at the day of Christ Jesus. Because if you narrow in on the circumstance, you're toast. You're toast. So the Christian needs to look here and see the cross, look here and see the eternal redemption, hold up the shield of faith, and then these fiery darts and these difficult circumstances, which Peter says might be necessary for a little while. They won't last forever. Grace is coming. 
We walk by faith and not by sight, Paul says. How about 2 Corinthians 4.17? For this light and momentary affliction, that's the circumstances in a fallen world, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Now listen what he says. As we look, that's a faith statement. As we look, this is a funny sentence, not to the things that are seen. <laughs> okay, so we're looking. We use our eyes to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, meaning they're going to go away. But the things that are unseen are eternal, which means they are the true reality forever. So Paul says, yeah, this light momentary affliction, I'm not seeing that as eternal reality. This is God's judgment on whether he loves me or not, whether I'm suffering right now. He says, no, I look to the things that are unseen because those things are the real things that last forever. And this suffering right now is actually building up an eternal weight of glory. All right. Psalm 18.29 says this, For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. So you have a choice. You get a diagnosis. Are you going to take refuge in every internet article you can read? about how to save yourself. Not saying it's bad to look at that. Where are you looking for refuge? If you look for refuge in Him on that day, He'll be a shield about you. He will be your refuge. Now, you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, He did it again. He's going to have to preach another sermon on the helmet of salvation. Well, I really view this, he doesn't say take up, he just says, and take the helmet of salvation. See, if, if you hold up the shield of faith, guess what you have? You have an armored helmet that covers your head, which doesn't let these lies and these darts get in there. When you remember Christ, you're invincible. Your mind is protected. Here's what Jesus said. He says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those that kill the body. All right, imagine a conversation starting out that way. All right, friends, I just want to tell you something. Don't fear those who kill the body. Come again? <laughs> Are you serious? And after that, have nothing more that they can do. Don't fear those who kill the body, and after that, have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you not a more value than they. Here's what he's saying. Yes, you got enemies. 
You got physical enemies. You have supernatural enemies. But if God doesn't forget a sparrow and he knows the numbers of hairs on your head, you pretty much have a helmet on where you're okay no matter any circumstance that might come your way. Here's the way Paul put it in Romans 8.31. What then shall we say to think these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is the one to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Christ who died for you, Christian, is right now at the right hand of God, interceding on your behalf, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you, praying for you. That's mine. Devil, get out of here, bringing me their sin. I died for that. You get out of here. And then he says this. I love this. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? That would be like not being justified, going to hell. I love, I love how this culminates. Who shall separate us? Here, here's the real thing. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It's good to not be condemned and to be justified in Jesus' name. That is a good thing. But the best thing is this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, there's a circumstance. Shall distress, circumstance. Persecution, circumstance. Famine, circumstance. Nakedness, danger, sword, as it is written. For your sake, we're all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yes, the world's it, it, life is tough in a fallen world. But then he says this. No, in all these circumstances, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a helmet that is invincible. You can be conquerors in the midst of the worst day, the hardest day of your life. And I'll give you his homework. Tonight, read Psalm 3 and Psalm 4. If you want to know what holding up the shield of faith looks like in difficult circumstances, read about David when his son's trying to kill him. Kill him. He's sleeping in the wilderness. Watch David pick up his shield of faith and sleep like a baby. So my prayer is, Christian, if you're on your own, you're going to be walking around with flaming darts. You need other believers to help pull them out, to put out the fire, to remind you what's true, to turn your head towards Christ. 